couple of prayer requests that we want to bring before the Lord, and then we'll look at our study for this evening for uh, Sister Sherry and her husband. They're on vacation right now, so we do want to uh, pray for them and for protection and just uh, a good time and uh, refreshment for Brother Chris um, Harriman. His mom passed away, and so we do want to pray for Chris and the family, and, and Chris asked that we would pray for him that, uh, again, that you know, he would just be a, a, a good witness to his family. So let's pray. Father, we lift up Sherry and her husband to you, Lord. We pray that, Father, you would bless them and that, Father, you would watch over them, you would protect them, Lord. And Father, that you would show them great and mighty things, Lord. Just reveal yourself to them in a powerful way, God. Lord, we pray for Chris, Brother Chris, Lord, as his mom has passed away. And, uh, Lord, I know it will be a, a great loss to the family, Father, and may you give him wisdom. God, may you give him a double portion of your spirit, God, uh, that he may minister to his family in this great time of need and loss, God. So, Lord, we thank you, and again, we're so blessed that we can look to you, God, for times like this, Lord. And we pray for all of our friends and loved ones, God, who have lost um, loved ones, that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, God, in, in such a difficult time, God. And so we look to you now. May you bless our time in your word, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. I had mentioned 31 last Sunday, but I forgot that I wasn't here last Sunday, so I didn't, or Wednesday, so I didn't do chapter 30, so we're going to cover it tonight. Chapter 30 of Isaiah, and it's the Lord rebukes Jerusalem. The Lord rebukes Jerusalem. As I mentioned before, um, now I mentioned before there were seven woes in Isaiah chapter 5. But as I've gone over it again, there are actually six woes. The first woe, which I accredited to, to Isaiah, it was really Isaiah's confession. Woe is me. I am undone. I, have a, I am a man of unclean lips. But these woes were to Israel. And so there were six of them. Again, the first one was Isaiah's own confession of woe because when he was in the presence of the holy God, he recognized what a sinner he was. So there are actually six woes announced against Israel in chapter 5. And each one of those woes speak of a particular sin for which God was judging Israel. Now, you can look at these sins and you can apply them to your life or to the life of our nation. But the interpretation is for Israel. It's already been fulfilled for them. But we can surely make application to our own hearts and lives through them. This is the fifth woe here in chapter 30. And it's a warning to willful sinners. God said, do not go to Egypt for help. He says, because it won't be a good thing for you to do. And it's going to be, turn out to be an embarrassing waste of your time. And this chapter is based on the faithfulness and the power of God. And if God is our helper, and if the word of God is the truth, and it's not really if it is, because it is, is, and since, I should say, since the word of God is the truth, and our future is, is Christ-filled, 
And since there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, why can't we go on? Why can't we carry on and live on those great, great resources that we have in God? When we start becoming aware of everything <clears throat> that God is worth, and we believe it in our hearts, then we'll start getting rid of our worldly relationships. We'll stop looking to the world for help. Relationships from the world that can only promise us a false hope and false deliverances, and then we will enter more and more into the life that is in Christ. So let's begin with verses 1 through 7, Isaiah chapter 30, and it says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, notice God says, but not from me, and who devise plans. They make their plans, but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin. In other words, God says, you know, woe to you guys who have a rebellious, you're rebellious children. You know, you, you take counsel, but it's not my counsel. You make plans, but I'm not involved in them. So he says there at the end of verse one, you add, you may add sin to sin. In other words, you're, you're just piling up more and more sins on your own life. Verse two, you walk down, who walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. You know, there's, there's, a shadow is not much to trust in. Verse three, therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan. In other words, the rulers went, as, the, their power extended as far as Zoan and his ambassadors have arrived to Hain, in Hanes. Verse 5, they were all ashamed of the people who could not benefit them or be helped or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden against the beasts of the south through a land of trouble and anguish from which came the, lonely, the lioness and lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain, notice, and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab him Shabbat. In other words, verses 1 through 7 are basically telling Israel that Egypt's promises are worthless. And God says because her promises are worthless, at the end of chapter, verse 7, he says, I call her Rahab him Shabbat, which means Rahab who sits still. And it refers to a period of inactivity by a nation or an inability to act, and it's referring to Egypt. God isn't as concerned with what we believe as he is with what we plan to actually do in our life. You see, because we can believe all the right stuff, we can believe all the right things, but direct our everyday life by another so-called wisdom. Another wisdom that's not much different than the world's. And that's what Isaiah's people did. They knew about the Exodus. They knew about how God had delivered them from Egypt. They knew how God had parted the Red Sea. And they knew about God's power to deliver. They knew the Old Testament. But in their everyday battles of life where the hard battles are fought, hey, they went through life in their own way. They did things their own way. A way, as the scripture says, seems right to man, but it's really another way. If it's not God's way, whose way is it? It's another way. Their real life struggle was the increasing pressure 
of the Assyrian Empire. Judah was being pushed around and bullied by the Assyrian Empire, and they were scared to death. But this is, the, this is exactly the kind of situation that God had promised to help them with from the very beginning. Listen to what God said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verses 12 to 24. He said, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. Notice, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them or how can I conquer them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. And you will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Isaiah was basically telling them, come on, you guys. Or God was basically telling him through Isaiah, come on, you guys, let's go through this together. Me and you, let me help you. God had proven himself over and over and over again as they went through the wilderness journey for 40 years. But you know, there seems to be something inside of us that makes us forget God's past faithfulness. And that increases the doubts in our present situations. Somehow we soon forget what God has done for us in the past and pretty soon we start feeling alone we start feeling like like god isn't there for us anymore and that you know that's just the way we are that's our human nature unfortunately this is why we need to be renewed and constantly refreshed there's always some temptation some tempting substitute for trusting in god something that makes us look away from god and turn to something else and Judah's mistakes were was trying to protect herself from assyria by making a deal with egypt and becoming partners with Egypt, which was never God's plan for them. He had taken them out of Egypt, and he said to them, never go back there. Listen to Deuteronomy, verses 14 through 17. 
He said to the, Israel, to the Israelites, he says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you. Notice, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people, notice, to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Remember, Israel, uh, Egypt is a type of the world. And God took his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt. And he said, don't ever go back there again. Israel was in constant danger of being invaded by their enemies. And instead of trusting God, the people wanted a king. And they wanted a king who would build an army, a big army, and would be strong and lead their nation to victory. But the spiritual leaders in Israel, they had gotten weak. Samuel's sons weren't walking with God. But the main reason that Israel wanted a king was they wanted to be like the other nations. But the big difference with Israel was that they weren't like the other nations. They were God's chosen people. They were a kingdom of priests. They were God's special treasure. He said in Numbers 3, 9, For the top of the rocks I see him. For from the top of the rocks I see him. And from the hills I behold him there. A people dwelling, notice, alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. He says they set themselves apart from the other nations. I see them from the tops of the rocks, from the hills, I see them. Imitating the world instead of trusting the Lord has always been a huge temptation and problem with God's people. And every time they have given in to that temptation, they have suffered for it. When Israel was marching through the wilderness, remember, they were always complaining. They were always complaining that everything that happened with them, you know, they were comparing it with what happened, you know, with what they experienced in Egypt. And in Kadesh Barnea, they even wanted to choose a leader and go back there. Listen to them in Numbers 14, 1 through 5. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, notice, this is what the congregation said to Aaron and Moses, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us? Notice, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Howard Hendricks said that comparison is carnality. Comparison is, is carnality. And the church today is guilty of unbelief as well. When church leaders take up the ways of the world, and then the church has moved closer to becoming like the world and losing the godly things that make it different instead of trusting the word of god in prayer we 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 depend upon following the world's wisdom imitating the world's ways and catering to worldly appetites giving people what they want rather than what they need Believers today need to take to heart what God said to Israel in Leviticus 20:24 20, I the Lord your God who has separated you 
from the peoples. Think about it. Judah is going back to the old place of bondage to try to get freedom. Now, in man's eyes, it seemed like the right thing to do. But from a spiritual point of view, it was a foolish thing to do. Because Egypt cannot offer the people of Judah anything that they don't already have in in Jehovah Jireh. In whom the Lord will provide. And Paul said in Colossians 2.10, my God, I'm sorry, in Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. In Colossians 2.10, Paul said, you are complete in him. He didn't fill us halfway so that we needed to be filled with something else. Judah's partnership and protection with Egypt was like being under a, a kind of a warm, comfy blanket. It made them feel good. It made them feel comfortable against the threat of the Assyrians. But, but it was an idol. And we need to understand that God doesn't bless our plans. He blesses only what He's planned because it's according to His sovereign will. And if His sovereign will doesn't live in our hearts, as He said in verse 1, surely we add sin to sin we just pile up the sins one upon another we're just piling up the sins making things worse and worse the first sin is not filling our hearts with the lord and because of the first sin the second sin is we add to it we add to uh, we, we we add to it our emptiness with our own false comforts but they never work out. And as a result, trusting Pharaoh, he said in verse 3, if you trust in Pharaoh, you're going to be humiliated by depending upon him, and you are going to be disgraced. So so we're not to fill our life with temporary, temporary and useless substitutes. All we need, all we should desire is in God's plan. It's all there for us already. And in verses 6 through 7 here, Isaiah is mocking the people's efforts to protect themselves with Egypt's help. In verses 6 through 7, he's thinking about Judah's caravan, these animals that are making their way through through the desert to Egypt. He talks about the the donkeys and the camels. They're loaded down with money and treasures, and the money and treasures they're going to give to to, uh, Egypt to buy its protection. Look what he says in verse 6. He's totally mocking them. He's saying the caravan is moving slowly across the terrible desert to Egypt. The donkeys are weighed down with riches and the camels are loaded with treasures all to pay for Egypt's protection. They're traveling through the wilderness where there's lions and there's poisonous snakes. All this. You're doing all of this. And Egypt is, going, is not going to really give you anything in return. Remember back in chapter 13 through, verse, through chapter 23, Isaiah would start out by saying the burden against Babylon, Moab, that is the judgment against them. But this is a burden or judgment against the beast, the animals here in verses 6 through 7. The rulers back in Jerusalem putting this treaty together with Egypt, they're worried. 
You know, they're saying in verse 6 or 7, where's the animals that are, that are bringing the treasures and the money, you know, to, to, to pay Egypt for protection? Where are they? They're wondering, how's the caravan to Egypt doing? Did they get there safely yet? Did they get the money there? and the tra- Any word on them yet? And so Isaiah here in verses 6 through 7, he's poking fun at them. He's saying, forget about the messengers and the money. <laughs> he's saying, what about those poor animals? He's showing how, un- <clears throat> how unspiritual they are and how ridiculous it is what they're trying to do. Judah's leaders aren't looking to heaven for help. They're not looking to God for help. They're not living by faith in God. You see, by going back to take care of themselves, their difficult journey back to to, to Egypt from where they had escaped, they're backsliding. They're backsliding. They're going backwards in their salvation. What are they going to get out of it? Verse 7 says this. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, Ham, Shabeth, which means Rahab is idle. The name is used as a poetic name for Egypt. God is so gracious because his message to all unspiritual minds who are stumbling their way through life is this. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29. Now, how do we do that? By asking questions like, who can't help me? Who do we find rest in? How do we find rest in? By saying, now, who can't help me? What false thing or things has let me down again and again and has cost me dearly, and yet I still keep going back to those things. The truth we really want is a spiritual truth. And it's founded in Jesus, and it's free for those who diligently seek it. Paul said in Colossians 2, 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The writer of Hebrews eleven six says, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now in verses 8 through 11, we have a warning for rebellious Judah. Notice, what should we listen to? Listen to verses 8 through 11. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Ah, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Isaiah's people have reached the end of the line with God. God wanted to lead them in his ways. But now he has to record his ministry for later generations to, receive, to, to read this. Because in verse 8, he says, Now go write it on, uh, uh, before them on a tablet and note on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever. He says, write this down so that people in the future can read this about my people. He has to record, Isaiah has to record his ministry for later generations to read 
Because God's people have rejected God's wisdom for their own natural wisdom. True spirituality starts when you're open to whatever God's word has to say to us. And for Isaiah's people, their covenant with God, or I'm sorry, their covenant with Egypt, it was just a symbol. The problem was they were unteachable and they were impatient with God's word and they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. Children who will not hear the law of the Lord, verse 9 says. Why didn't they want to hear it? Because God's spiritual answer, and this is a lot of times why even sometimes Christians, we don't want to hear it. Because God's spiritual answer seems to be unhelpful and demanding. It's a tough combination. It seems to be unhelpful because maybe we don't receive that help right away. And it's very demanding. Wait, wait, wait. If a certain spiritual road is hard, but rewarding, and it's obvious, that's one thing. But these people here could only see the demand. They never looked past the work. They never looked past the demand to what the result would be. So they couldn't enjoy their result. They couldn't enjoy the outcome that would be produced by obeying God's commands. You know, it's, it's like Hebrews 12, 2 says about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, speaking of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, when you read that, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, makes it, you know, some people really say, well, you know, how could he, how could he, Say, he, he, you know, he was going to have joy because he was enduring the cross. It wasn't that he was going to enjoy enduring the cross. He was looking past the cross, which helped him to, to, to enjoy the, product, the, the, the product, the result of the cross, which would put him at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew what the cross would bring. He wasn't looking at the difficult part of his mission he wasn't looking at the difficult part of god's demand that he 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 called for his son to go to the cross but son what it's going to bring what it's going to be what it's going to produce is a joy you will sit at the right hand of the throne of god and so the people just got tired of isaiah's ministry they didn't they didn't want isaiah to stop preaching what they wanted was preaching that, that, that would agree with what they thought. They wanted to hear preaching that wouldn't upset their life. The people wanted sermons that wouldn't upset their comfortable way of living. That's the trouble with truth. It's very offensive to the natural man. They don't, not, they don't want to hear it, but that's what they need to hear. And that's what's going to help them the most and what's important for them. And we never have to be afraid of opening our hearts to God because whatever He says to us in His Word, it, it's coming from His heart. It's coming from a heart of love. It's coming from a heart of grace. It's coming from a heart that only wants the best for you. And, and, and he says, my thoughts you know, for you are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now we know that some of God's truths, man, they're wonderful. And those are the ones that we mostly highlight. 
but then we know some of God's truth smack us right between the horns. We don't like those. But everything that he says opens up to you the life that's in Christ if you're open to the word of God. Trust him to, enough to keep listening. Give his word an honest chance. You know, don't, don't listen with, with disinterest and just kind of a, oh well, in one ear and out the other ear kind of thing. Open your heart wide to God and he will blow you away with, with how his wisdom really works. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, notice, and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so there shall not be found among its uh, fragments a shard to take fire from the earth or to take water from the cistern. Here Isaiah shows us what our own ideas are really worth. He says in verse 10, our ideas are really like a high wall. It looks solid. It looks like it might protect us. But there's a small crack in it. And in time, that crack is going to grow. It's going to spread. And that wall is going to come crashing down. It can't hold us up. It's corrupt. It, it can't support. And Isaiah is saying that our, our ways are also like a broken vessel here, smashed to pieces. It's too weak to stand up against the pounding that, that life gives us. So the wise thing to do is not hide behind that wall or put anything of value in that vessel. Isaiah is saying that our natural ways for responding to life may seem like the right thing to do. But they can't be trusted. But entering into the hidden treasures that are in Christ means going back and relearning everything. We have to become like little children, Jesus said. Verses 15 through 17. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. And at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole that is a, a, a lonely flagpole on top of a mountain as a banner on a hill. During a serious invasion of Judah, the Jews couldn't flee on their horses that they got from Egypt. He says, yeah, we're going to flee on your horses. And Isaiah said, says, yeah, and you're going to see how they're going to chase you on their horses out of town. They couldn't flee on their horses that they got from Egypt. And one enemy, they say, Isaiah said, one enemy's going to run off a thousand. How embarrassing. The only hope was to repent, return to the Lord, and by faith rest in Him. But they wouldn't listen and they wouldn't obey. Verse 18. Therefore, the Lord will wait. Notice that He may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a, a God of justice. Blessed are all those, notice, who wait for him. 
one of the hardest things to do is wait. Blessing is what we can look forward to. And here you can see God's reasoning. The Lord Lord is saying here to wait. God waits. And we wait. And we wait for him by faith, confidence in his word, confident in his timing. Because we know his timing is right. We know his ways are best, that they're they're the wisest. And the mindset to trust is the way to experience Again, spiritual blessing. Look at the third part of verse 18. He said, blessed are those who wait for him. And it says there, notice, and the Lord will be gracious to us. The Lord waits for the purpose of being gracious to us. In other words, the Lord waits. The Lord continues to be patient and he puts up with us moment by moment. He doesn't forsake us. And when God waits, think of it. Remember this, when, when you're in, in that waiting mode, when God waits, it's because he might have a better gift for you than the one that you might be asking for. We're in such a hurry. And we're willing to settle for second best. God says, wait. I got something good for you. And it's the best for you. Because see, God, God foresees. He sees ahead of us. And when he sees ahead of us and what's best for us, he compensates you know, for our needs. He adjusts things for what I need in my life. It's his faithfulness that we can count on, not ours. So when we find ourselves asking, how long, Lord? Because I'm sure we've asked, we've all asked, Lord, how long? How long is this going to go on? How long do I have to wait? His answer might be, whenever you're ready. Those who wait on God will experience, verse 19 tells us, answered prayer. Look at verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He, God, will be very gracious to you. And notice, at the sound of your cry, and when he hears it, he will answer you. Those who wait on God will experience answered prayer, verse 19 says. Verse 20 and 21, God says that you will experience guidance. Notice verse 20 and 21. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Notice, he's giving you guidance. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Though the Lord God gives you adversity, you know, for food and suffering for drink, he will still, you know, be with you. He will teach you. You'll see your teacher with your own eyes. Your own ears will hear him. And right behind you, you'll hear this voice saying, this is the way you're to go. You'll also experience, you know, whenever you're ready, you'll also experience cleansing. Look at verse 22. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. Notice, you will throw them away as an unclean, unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. You'll get rid of all of your idols, all of your precious gold images, and you'll say to them, get out of here. 
Verses 23 through 26 says you'll experience faithfulness. Notice verses 23 through, 20, uh, through 26. He goes on to say, Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. And in that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, and the light of seven days in, the, in that day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound." He says, the Lord is going to bless you with rain when it comes time to plant. There's going to be a wonderful harvest and there's going to be plenty of, plenty of plas, uh, pasture land for your livestock. The oxen and the donkeys that till the ground, they're going to eat good grain. The chaff, that is the unwanted portions of, of, the, of the land, will be blown away by the wind. And in that day, your enemies are going to be slaughtered. And, and so again, it's, it's a beautiful promise of God in that day when, it's, when he's taking care of it. Verses 27 through 33. Notice, now he tells us what is not a threat to us. Verses 27 through 33. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and his heavy burden. Uh, and I'm sorry, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. But who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord? I'm, I'm sorry, I jumped over to 31. Verse 29, uh, let me go back here. Um, let me start at 27 again. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream, which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. You shall have a song as in the night when a, a, a holy festival is kept. And gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be bit, beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps, and in battles of brandishing he will fight with it. For Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a, like a steam of brimstone, kindles it. Isaiah says, look. The Lord is coming from far away and he's burning with anger. His words consume like fire. He says he's going to sift out the proud nations and destroy them. He's going to bridle them and he's going to lead them away to ruin. But God's people are going to sing a song of joy. He says like the songs of the holy festivals. He says you'll be filled with joy like a, like a flutist who leads a group of pilgrims through Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord is going, to, is going to make his majestic voice heard. He's going to show the strength of his mighty arm. And it's going to descend with, the, with, with devouring flames and cloudbursts. 
thunderstorms and huge hailstones. And at his command, the Assyrians are going to be shattered. They're going to be destroyed. He's going to strike them down with his royal scepter. And as the Lord strikes them down with his rod of punishment, his people are going to celebrate, it says, with tambourines and with harps. Lifting his mighty arm, he's going to fight the Assyrians. And Topheth, which is the place of burning, has already been ready for the Assyrian king. It's been ready for him for a long time. And the pyre is piled high with the wood. The breath of the Lord, like fire from a volcano, is going to set it ablaze. So his final subject here in this woe is vengeance. Isaiah is saying that God is going to defeat the Assyrians. God used Assyria to discipline Judah, but God would not allow the Assyrians to take the city of David. Isaiah used several images to describe God's judgment of Assyria. He used a storm of fire and hail. He used a flood, the sifting of grain. The harnessing of a horse so that the enemy is let off like a farm animal. And just as Sheol was, pre was prepared for the king of Babylon, Sheol being the place of the dead, so Topheth was prepared for the king of Assyria. Now Topheth was a place that was outside Jerusalem where the worshipers of Molech would sacrifice their children. And it was defiled by Josiah, and he turned it into a garbage dump and he named it Gehenna, which means Valley of the Son of Hinnom. That was the location of Topheth. Gehenna is the New Testament word for hell. The funeral pyre for the great king of Assyria would be a humiliating garbage dump. So looking into the future, Isaiah sees a feast for us with music and a song and a joyful heart. And the victory is going to be God's and we're going to enjoy it. So in closing, though we don't always treat God as a faithful friend, thank God he is still faithful to us. We have to stay away from any path that takes us away or deviates from God's word. And we need to follow the Holy Spirit. And we need to guard against our own wisdom that offends God's wisdom. Because only, only, there's only one way, and that's God's way. Jesus said, I am the way. And we need to be open, and we need to be willing to do whatever God's word says. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your tender mercies, Lord. And Father, we pray that as we read your word, God, the Father, we would, again, not listen to it with disinterest as God's people had done. And Father, who didn't want to hear Isaiah preach the truth, they said, don't preach to us those, those things that are right. Preach things that are good and, and things that make us feel comfortable. Lord, help us to want to hear what we need to hear. We need to hear what's right and what's true, God. Well, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your tender mercies, Lord. We thank you that for all that you are to us, God. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.